our last session, we noted that David Hume raised serious questions about the whole experience that we have of causality. And if you recall, I pointed out that there is a difference, according to Hume, between a customary connection or and a necessary connection. Now, his favorite illustration to talk about this problem is what we call the pool ball illustration. We've used it in other occasions, but we're going to focus more carefully now on it from Hume's perspective. So we envision before us a simple pool table. And on the table, there is a cue ball. And then further down the table, there is an object ball. We'll call it the eight ball, if you will. And at the end of the table, there's a pocket. Now, the pool player wants to shoot the cue ball into the eight ball and knock the eight ball, in this case, into the corner pocket. Now, there's a series of things that takes place. First of all, you have the pool player. He selects his cue. He puts his chalk on the end of the tip. He takes his position at the end of the table. He sights down his line of sight. He has his cue stick in his hand. He moves his arm, which initiates the stroke. Because when he moves his arm, the movement of his arm causes the cue stick to move in the direction of the cue ball. And the cue stick now comes and hits the cue ball. And when it hits the cue ball, what happens? The cue ball starts to move or roll across the table. And we hope if this man's aim has been good, that is in the direction of the eight ball. Now, meanwhile, the eight ball is just sitting there on the table at rest. It's in a state of inertia. It's been just an eight ball. And... The cue ball keeps rolling, keeps rolling, and it strikes the eight ball, boom. And as soon as the cue ball strikes the eight ball, what happens? The eight ball starts to move. And it moves in the direction of the pocket and hopefully will then drop into the corner pocket and the shot has been executed according to plan. Now, Hume is saying, we're standing here watching this. We're observing these things take place. And we see certain actions follow upon certain other actions. That we see contiguous action or actions of contiguity. Now, that may be a word we don't use every day. But if you have a piece of property where you live, let's say you have a front yard, and your front yard has a border to it, and that's your property line, and right next door to you, somebody else lives, and their property line comes right up against your property line. Now, these are two different properties, but we would say that the first property, which we'll call property A, is contiguous to property B. That is, it is adjacent to it. It is right next door. That's what we mean by contiguity. Now, 
Going back to our pool ball illustration, we see actions that are contiguous, actions that take place next to each other or after one another. And we assume that we are perceiving the cause of certain changes. We say, oh, well, what caused the pool ball to move? Well, obviously, that which caused the pool ball to move was the striking of the cue ball with the cue stick. Well, what makes the eight ball move? Well, it's the action of the cue ball hitting the eight ball, which now imparts force to the eight ball, and the eight ball starts to move across the table. Well, why does it drop into the corner pocket? Well, once it gets in the right position, all it takes for it to fall into the corner pocket is gravity to cause it to fall, because there's nothing there to support it. Do you see the gravity? Do you perceive the force? Do you have a sensation, a visual sensation of the actual energy that is being transferred from one ball to the next at the impact? What is Hume saying here? No. You don't perceive the actual cause taking place. All you see is a contiguous relationship between events, or again, a customary connection. Because it's not that we've only observed one cue ball in our lives striking one eight ball in our lives, but we've seen it over and over again. And though the shot may be missed from time to time, the basic activity is the same. That is, every time one ball hits another ball, that second ball moves. It may not move in the direction you want it to move or at the speed you want it to move, but it moves. And we assume a causal necessary connection. Now, the point of all of this is simple. Hume is an empiricist, and he says that all of our knowledge is based upon what? Sense perceptions, sensations that we have with the five senses. But we don't have a perception or a sensation of cause itself. All we see are the relative actions of the objects. And we fill in the blanks. I remember when I took my first lesson at drawing for purposes of art, and I tried to draw a portrait, and I had a friend of mine who was an artist, and he was trying to give me some hints on how to draw portraits by using different shapes and circles and triangles and all of that and filling in the lines. And I would try to draw a portrait of somebody, and every line that I could see with my eye on the real face of the person whose portrait I was trying to draw, I would then try to reproduce on the paper. And my teacher said to me, he says, that's not how you do it. I said, what do you mean? I said, here's a nose here, and there's a line there, and there's a line here, 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 line here. I'm trying to draw this nose. 
He says, no, that's not how you do it. I said, well, how do you do it? He said, you just shade this side here in a little bit and maybe some shading down here and you leave it alone. I said, well, that's not a nose. He says, yes, it is, because the human eye will fill in the detail. And he said, you're making the mistake of every amateur, trying to reproduce the thing with every detail, and it looks wooden. It looks artificial. Same thing with writing when I wrote a novel. In that novel, I was trying to describe this seedy bar that one of the characters entered. And I thought, now how should I describe this bar? Should I start with the front door and talk about what kind of wood's on the front door and tell how big the rooms are, give the dimensions like I would to an architect, and tell how many tables are there, how many stools are by the bar? You know, no, you could go on describing it forever. And I decided to do it this way. The guy goes in, he sits at the bar, and he's sitting there alone, and he looks up, and he sees a fan, an exhaust fan, by the kitchen. And he notices that the exhaust fan is so thickly covered with grease that he wonders how the blades of the fan can even turn at all. That's the only description I give of the bar. Can you imagine it? Do you have in your mind an idea of what that bar in its fullness looked like? It's going to look different in your different minds. But you know it's not an upscale cocktail lounge. You know it's a ratty joint because of the fan. In other words, I highlighted one detail and let the reader's imagination fill in the rest. Now, what Hume is saying is that we don't just do that with music or with art or with literature, but we do it philosophically. We supply things with the mind that we don't perceive. And the big one that we're supplying here is causality. So what he does is he shows that we have no perception of actual causality. Now that raises the question, does that mean then that once and for all David Hume has destroyed the very idea of causality? And must we now discard causality as a law? Remember we've talked about this law, that the law of causality says that every effect must have an antecedent cause. And at that time I mentioned to you that that definition of the law of cause and effect is a formal definition. It is an analytical definition, and it is true by logical necessity. Why? Because the word effect means something that has been brought about by something else. And so when I say, here's what causality means, that for every effect there is an antecedent cause, that concept is analytically true. It's like saying 2 plus 2 are 4, or a triangle has three sides. Maybe there aren't any real triangles out there, but in the formal, intellectual, rational arena, it is logically necessary 
to say of a triangle that it has three sides. Because if it doesn't have three sides, it's not what? A triangle. So if something doesn't have a cause, then it would be improper to call it an effect. I'll say it again. If something does not have a cause, then it would be improper to call it an effect. Is God an effect? No. Why? Because he doesn't have a cause. There's no antecedent cause for God. Now, because so much science and so much philosophy and so much theology rests upon the formal principle of the law of cause and effect, our reasoning in medicine, our diagnostic programs, if you have a stomach ache, that's an effect, you go to the doctor and you want to know what? What causes my stomach ache? Is it something I ate? Or have I had an invasion of some submicroscopic organism that's threatening my life? You want to know what's causing your stomach ache. But here, Hume has raised questions about causality itself. Or has he? Now, what has happened since Hume is that many philosophers, and certainly many students, have drawn the conclusion that what Hume did in his critique of causality is so cut the rug underneath causality that he has disproven causality itself. Now, there's an ongoing debate as to whether Hume thought that's what he was doing. I personally side with those who say that Hume did not think he was destroying the law of causality. I don't think that was his point because he makes some very revealing statements in his inquiry like, well, we don't know what causes one thing to happen. Anything can produce anything. That's his statement. Well, if he's changing the word cause to production, I'm not going to quibble with that. What he is being skeptical about is our ability to perceive the exact cause of a certain action. Now, note the difference between saying, I don't know what causes that pool ball to move, and saying, nothing is causing the pool ball to move. If I say, I don't know what the cause is, I'm being skeptical about my ability to have a direct and immediate experience of perceiving the actual cause. Nothing new there. This was what the debate in the 17th century was all about, as I've mentioned. It's one thing to be skeptical with respect to pinpointing the exact cause. It's another thing by going whole hog and saying, there is no cause. Because if we say, there is no cause for an effect, now we have made a nonsense statement at the rational level. And our argument would be falsified. So I think Hume has been given way too much credit or discredit for destroying causality. What he did was destroyed our certainty about particular individual causes. He's right. We don't know that the grass gets wet because it rained. Because we have no direct perception of that cause. But we do know this, that if the wetness of the grass is an effect, 
something has caused it. Now that becomes very important when we get back later on to arguments for the existence of God. Because it's one thing for me to say, I didn't perceive creation. That doesn't mean there wasn't one. I may not know how that effect was brought to pass, but if it is an effect, it has to have a cause. That remains absolutely intellectually necessary. But I'll save that for when we get to Kant. Now, in the time that we have left for Hume, I want to mention how his dialogue concerning natural religion has also been a forcible problem for Christians who argue for miracles. You can't pick up the Bible and read the Bible without encountering claims of miraculous deeds, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The New Testament record of Jesus is the record of a miracle worker who finally is raised from the dead as a miraculous thing. Now, Hume critiques miracles. For the sake of time, I'm going to get very simple about this. Basically, what he is saying is this, that any time there is an allegation or claim of a miracle, a natural explanation for the miracle is much more reasonable than to believe the miracle claim itself. Let me say it again. Anytime there is an allegation or claim for a miracle, a natural explanation for the event is always more reasonable than claiming supernatural intervention because of the ordinary behavior of nature because of the customary relationships of nature. For example, the New Testament claims that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. So what the miracle is claiming is something extraordinary. In the literal sense, extraordinary. Why? Because what is the ordinary result of death? People who die ordinarily stay dead. And so he looks at this in terms of empirical analysis, and he said, we have not just thousands and not even just millions, but multi-millions of cases where people die and they stay dead. So that the customary relationship of staying deadness following dying, that customary relationship is astronomical in terms of its mathematical occurrence. And so Hume applies what he calls the probability quotient to every particular claim for a miracle. In simple language, a probability quotient is the odds. So here we have a book that tells us that this man lived, and he died, and then he came back from the dead. What are the odds? The probability quotient given the customary relationships of the contiguous events of death and so on are astronomical in the probability quotient that such and such a thing really never took place. 
Now, I have heard apologists for Christianity use arguments like this, that the death of Jesus and His resurrected is reported by people who gave their lives for their conviction that He really rose from the dead. Or you'll hear this argument, Jesus was either a liar, He was deluded, or He was who He said He was. And then they'll go on and start eliminating all of the options until he was who he said he was. And they eliminate the, you know, the idea of how incredible it would be that these people would claim these miracles and believe them at the risk of their life and limb and die as martyrs in defense of them. Well, certainly, that's an extraordinary thing to find people with the magnitude of faith and consistency of life that we find in the New Testament records. But beloved, which is more extraordinary, that somebody should die for a conviction or that somebody should come back from the dead? Which is more regular that a person who claims to be God incarnate is nuts or a liar or that he really is? If you really want to weigh these things on the basis of probability quotients against normalcy, these arguments fall dead by their own weight. Now, the problem that Hume gets himself into is that one of his chief critiques of miracles is that a miracle cannot be believed because it postulates a unique event, a unique event that is different from all these repeated occurrences of customary relationships. Again, if it happens 10 billion times that a person dies, then they stay dead. And then all of a sudden, somebody claims to have come back from the dead, that would be a unique event. And anything that claims to be a unique event is out of here, has to be dismissed as being astronomically improbable. What's wrong with that? Well, we would isolate that or recognize it as a unique event on the basis of, say, a hundred million similar events that would differ from this one. Well, how do you get a hundred million similar events? How do you get from one to a hundred million? You have to count. You have to add them up, right? So. The first guy in the world that lives and dies and stays dead, that's example number one. That's exhibit A. The second guy that dies is the second one, and you do that all the way up to 100 million. What's wrong with this? Well, remember, the first guy that died was a unique event. And so we can't count it. It doesn't count because it's unique. Now the second guy dies. Well, what about now it's not unique? Is it? Yes, it is, because the first one has already been discounted. So the second death is a new unique event. You can't have number two. And following this logic, you can't have three, four, five, six, seven, eight, all the way up to 100 million. What this does simply is rule out of possibility all events, because all events, in a certain sense, are unique. Well, our time is up. I'll talk just a little bit more about this in our next session as we introduce the most pivotal character of this whole period.
Tamanyoka.